Hi, I'm Peggy. And I'm Dave. And this is Amped. Hey, Dave, how are you today? I'm great. How are you, Peggy? I am doing well. Has school resumed in your area? Nope, not yet. Week after next, right after Labor Day. Okay, because we're all heading back tomorrow. Ooh. Can you hear the glee in my voice? This, not really. <laughs> it's not even thinly masked. I know. I'm I'm really trying to at least like contain my smile as we're back to school shopping and yeah. I I'm not fooling anybody though. I'm pretty sure. Maybe it's the celebratory cupcakes that I have in the fridge to eat when I send them off tomorrow. Nine thirty AM time for cupcakes. <laughs> That's right. Wow. Yeah, Excellent. It's been a good summer. It's been a long summer, though. It Everybody needs their routine. So, which is interesting because, you know, um, when Robbie first started school, I was, like, dreading the first day of kindergarten. I was not a good kindergarten mom. And now I, I feel much more seasoned. And I'm like, go ahead, leave. I'm good. I'm good. You got this. You know, so things have really changed. Um, I've changed, which kind of is my thinly veiled segue into today's topic, which is how things have changed in in terms of prosthetics and technology. Since we we became amputees specifically. Exactly. Exactly. Since it was around the same time. Yeah. So you want to provide an overview of what we'll be talking through? Um, Sure. So, you know, I became an amputee in 2003. And since that time, I've seen huge movements forward in access to care and access to even the components that I'm using have drastically changed in just that short period of time. So it's amazing how much has been accomplished and kind of exciting when you look forward to to what could be on the horizon. Unfortunately, of course, you know, when you deal with technology, Dave, the, the big stickler is always insurance and access to care and money. And we're going to be discussing how those factors have kind of changed over the years as well. Yes. So why don't why don't you take um, what what I sort of labeled as we were planning this podcast, the direct changes in care and technology, what what it is that, you know, goes on our bodies and how care is provided, uh, those types of things. And I'll deal with the indirect things, which are things like health insurance and the regulatory and legal environment around healthcare more generally. You got it. Um, direct changes in care. Uh, the first one that comes to mind is basically who is providing your care? Who is your prosthetist? Um, I know that with with STEM really being pushed through the schools, um, we, we're seeing a lot more women coming into kind of the engineering and even prosthetics fields. Um, and today, more than ever, more and more women are becoming prosthetists. So it's a really kind of exciting time to, to walk into an office. And, you know, it's it's not even yet, Dave. Do you happen to know what those numbers are, male to female ratio? I don't know overall in the industry, but interestingly, I, I was at a women's leadership conference for O&P just this past uh, tail end of this past week. And I asked one of the women there who had recently graduated from Northwestern, I said, what was the what was the mix in your class? And she said it was about 50-50, which is what is consistent with what I've been hearing in a number of the programs around the United States. And that is a significant change. I know that I did a lecture for Cal State Dominguez Hills probably in like 2008, 2009, and I think there might have been one female in the class. 
And that was pretty common around then. Um, so what I'm hearing just anecdotally is that over the last three to five years, particularly, um, it has become much, much more balanced from a gender standpoint uh, within the O&P programs that are turning out tomorrow's prosthetists. Which is, is a really, really cool thing. I really like seeing that. Um, so not only in addition to who's providing care, but what what care is being provided. You know, when I when I became an amputee in 2003, uh, the C leg, the, the computerized leg knee, the microprocessor knee was kind of just really starting to, to gain traction, like with the, the everyday amputees, right? So it was really starting to infiltrate the community. Um, but I, you know, they didn't have any kind of, of bionic ankle at that point or anything like that. So my, my first device was just a carbon fiber, you know, foot, which at the time was, you know, carbon fiber was still, you know, kind of the leader in, in what you got from a technology standpoint. Um, right. And now, now, you know, you can have microprocessor ankles and microprocessor knees and the hands are just incredible. Um, and they have all the finger fingers that can, you know, independently articulate all of the technology that, that when I became an amputee was kind of the, the highest of the high elite sci-fi kind of thing is really, you know, being worn more and more frequently by the everyday amputee. Yes, with a caveat, obviously, that access uh, access issues can sometimes make that difficult. But I, I think if you just looked at it from sort of the what's the general standard of care in the industry for particular types of patients, uh, I think that most prosthetists would say, um, you know, absent uh, insurance barriers, they would say the appropriate standard of care for the vast majority of amputees are devices that are smart devices. They're not just dumb mechanical things. And obviously it's patient specific and activity specific a little bit, but uh, microprocessor knees are a great example of that. Um, we've, we've even seen the development uh, over the last really six or seven years of powered prosthetic components starting to make their way into the marketplace with powered knees and powered feet, which are actually actively providing push off and or uh, actively lifting the foot off the ground backwards and, and forwards, uh, replicating lost muscle function. So really exciting stuff. Um, still, obviously, as we've talked about in the past, a long way to go to get close to actually replicating a full uh, biological foot, hand, or knee. But if you look at what it looks like today compared to what the components were that I was wearing when I became an amputee in 1996 uh, and got my first prosthesis in early 97. It isn't even comparable. It's sci-fi is what you're on now. Like what you would have imagined the far future would be is now. So, you know, I, I look at the horizon and I'm very excited about what could be there that I'm not even thinking about. Uh, but I also know that the ability to get the devices that are invented is a whole other beast. And Dave, you'll probably delve into that a little bit more. Yes. Yes. So I'll leave the fun ones for you. Thanks. I'll be, <laughs> I'll be the wet blanket on this. There you podcast. go. So I'll talk about everything that's going to be really cool and really exciting. Um, and how your prosthesis gets made. There's starting to be a trend away from the on-site labs and the, the you know, 
the in-house fabrication to more central fabrication facilities where the molds or measurements are sent to a third party that, and is fabricated there and then sent back to the prosthetist for adjustments and a final fitting. Yeah. And the reason for that, I mean, this, I, I don't think this is fundamentally a patient care issue. I don't think this is about we get necessarily, we get better results. Um, it, it, what it really is about, I think, for, for most O&Ps is it's as, as price compression has occurred in this industry, costs are rising generally, reimbursement is dropping and or patient, uh, patient balances are increasing due to high deductible health plans primarily. Um, I think that that has become um, a way to try to contain costs. If you can have a third party do all of this, and I, you know, I don't have to have as much equipment in my facility. I don't have to in- invest all of those capital expenses in ovens and everything that comes with it. I can maybe reduce my staff um, if I'm if I'm uh, putting this out to a third party to fabricate. It allows facilities to run in a leaner way. And I think that the challenge for the modern O&P is trying to find the balance between the, the efficiencies and cost reductions that that type of process can reveal or can yield to a business on the one hand, and the ability to make sure that you can still provide in the moment prosthetic care to someone if something bad happens. Um, and I, I think there are different philosophies to this with different O&P companies out there. Um, I know there are, there are a handful that are really embracing this model and moving towards it very aggressively. There are some that are kind of doing a hybrid approach. And then there are some that want to do nothing uh, but make sure they fabricate everything in-house and they market that as a, a value that they provide that is distinct and unique. I don't know which one is right because depending on your business model, I think any one of them can work. Um, sometimes all three of them could work, but um, I think we'll see over the next five to seven years, Peggy. I think this will become a a, a much hotter debate uh, in the O and P world, and it's something that, by extension, then, and I think we even included this as a question in our choosing the right prosthetist podcast and and show notes and supporting materials. Um, you know, it's going to be something that I think patients will increasingly be asking about and trying to understand the implications of it. Right. And when we did that podcast, Dave, we did talk about how there's, there's really no right answer to that question. That one is really not, you know, better than another. So it really depends on, on the facility and the practitioner that you go to. That's right. Yep. So I just felt like we needed to remind people of that. Yeah, no, no, no. And we're not we're not saying one is better than the other. This is a change though that is occurring. It's different. Uh if you if you went back um to 1996, um there were not many central fabs out there and um I think they were generally looked down on as kind of a cop out. Uh, by by some in the prosthetic field is just, you know, this is something, if you don't know really how to make a leg, you take it to a CFAB. Now it is part of a broader business strategy that O&Ps are very seriously looking at. So very cool. Another another thing that I find fascinating, and and I think that I personally am holding a lot of optimism and promise for 3D printing. Um, as it pertains to prosthetics right now, it's still definitely in the infancy, 
but I think that it's going to start playing uh, a greater and a greater role. It started out with with more just like the coverings and fairings and that sort of thing. And now we're seeing a lot more, um, especially schools are doing it. I'm noticing in the articles, either that or they're just getting the press for it, where they kind of adopt somebody in the community and then will design and 3D print an upper extremity prosthesis for that person, which are just really good feel-good stories. I think we're going to start seeing that more and more. And I think as the filament becomes more durable and more dynamic, I think we're going to see more lower limb um, implications, applications of 3D printing. There's no question that 3D printing is going to play a huge role in the future of prosthetics. Um, you know, if we look at sort of the current state today, I think you're right. The vast majority of, of press that you read about relates to what I will call feel-good stories as well. Um, and it's it's high schools, it's college students, it's um, it's weekend warriors, just hobbyists making... Civic clubs are doing it. Yeah, they just, they, they make, and it's primarily been upper extremity. Um, actually, it's all been upper extremity in that context. Um, but, you know, they're making 3D printed hands, particularly for kids who can't afford a prosthesis. And you get these, you know, very cool looking um, devices. Now, there is, and this is not a, a big secret, there's a lot of angst um, about the the results that those devices provide. I, I think, you know, there are obviously sometimes clinical cases that can be more involved. And so when you're fitting a device onto a human being's body, you want to make sure that it fits appropriately and that it's safe. And so, you know, there, I know there have been uh, concerns raised about that by, by some in the world of prosthetics. Um, I know that there are prosthetists actively trying to engage with that community, the, the hobbyist community, let's call it, um, that is doing this type of work and taking it real seriously. Um, and they're, they're trying to build bridges to make sure that, uh, these devices, uh, are fit in an appropriate way, uh, particularly when more involved, uh, clinical case presents itself. But I think that the, the more interesting longer term questions, Peggy, around 3D printing really relate to, what does an O&P facility look like in 10, 15 years as the materials improve and as the price of 3D printers drop? And, you know, I, I, I could easily see a future where maybe not in the next decade, but I think in 10 to 20 years, you might see prosthetists um, 3D printing components that are essentially more custom than anything that we've ever seen for their patients. And oh, I, I think see we'll see that in 10 years. And, well, and, and to go one step further, I, I, I really wonder how it will affect companies like the one that I work for, where we're a manufacturer. So today we, we make everything right. And, you know, with this gets complicated to the extent that the FDA is going to be a big part of this in the future. And the FDA has really not engaged on 3D printing in healthcare a whole lot yet, certainly not in external prosthetics at all, really. But, you know, I do wonder whether, you know, the future of at least some manufacturers or some tech startup is going to be, we're going to provide, we're basically going to license our designs to prosthetists. So now the prosthetist, instead of buying a foot, from company A, company B, or company C is going to go to that that manufacturer's website, 
like an you know a prosthetic foot Amazon, and they're going to select the design they want, and then they're going to pay a fee to access that design. But the actual three D printed device is going to happen in their facility, um, or a central fab, or a central fab. This is complicated, and like I said, it I think it's less complicated from could it happen? Like I think conceptually, everyone can understand this as a potential model. Where it gets complicated is on the regulatory side. And what we have not seen yet, Peggy, is any any real 3D printing going on um, that's broadly advertised in a for-profit way. And that's where it's going to get real interesting when there's a company out there actively promoting that is a 3D printing manufacturer. Um, I'm very interested to see what happens with the FDA because there are standards that manufacturers have to comply with in order to ensure that these devices are safe. Um, and effective for for use every day, and um, I, I don't think that that any of that kind of testing that the FDA requires in the for profit space is really occurring in the current three D printing community that's out there, um, and I, I don't think the FDA is really going to step in until there's that monetary aspect to it, right. because I think from their perspective, well, if it's if it's having something that is helping somebody and there's there's no money involved and it's not widespread, it's not one company doing hundreds of thousands of them, then you know we're gonna we're gonna let it ride. I, I think it's I think we can agree that 3D printing is on the rise and it's gonna be something that we will be talking about and will be impacting the community sooner rather than later. Fully agree. No yes. question. All right. And I think that the one other area, Dave, with concerning changes in care, especially on how your prosthesis is made, is we're going to be seeing more and more of the, the smart feet, smart knees, and t- articulating fingers and, and hands. And I think that we're going to start seeing more and more other sensory components integrated into these designs, whether it be the hot cold or the pain, but there's going to be more and more emphasis on feeling receptors. Yeah, that's absolutely right. There's been a lot of, a lot of research on this. And I think you and I've even touched on it in a podcast or two where (laughs) we, we've questioned at some level, do we want this? Because it's, uh, Arguably, one of the advantages of being an amputee is not having to be subject to certain types of uh, sensation that can be unpleasant. But I think from a from a utility standpoint, you know, being able to use devices effectively, uh, clearly having the ability to to have um, not only proprioception of where a limb is in space, but also the sensation of touch and feel is is going to be uh, integrated into into future prosthetic devices, and that's going to help people function uh, in a way that is more biologically normal. Definitely. It's going to be fun to watch that kind of play out too. Now, Dave, I feel like I kind of got to, to cover the fun changes that we've seen since becoming amputees with the new technologies that are already being used more frequently and with some things on the horizon like the 3D printer, like the, the inclusion of more microprocessor powered devices. Um, of course, with, with all of those advances come some indirect changes that may not be as, as fun to talk about. So I'm going to let you take care of those. 
Well, thank you so much for that. So there's four things that we're going to focus on, Peggy, in, in this portion. And um, two of them, I think, are potentially limiting factors or, or create kind of a break on, on the positive. And then there are two that are uh, trend positive, but are things to, to watch for. So um, the first uh, indirect change is obviously how the financial burden on patients has changed over the last 20 plus years. Um, we've seen the rise of high deductible health plans. We've seen insurers increasingly cost shifting more and more uh, of the co- total cost of healthcare onto patients, especially for out of network care. Um, and we've also frankly just seen an increase in out of pocket exposure because of one of the benefits you cited uh, a few minutes ago, which was the utilization, increased utilization of devices that cost more. And so with higher cost devices come higher balances that patients are are responsible for. So if you compare what it's like today in 2018 to what it was in 1996 when I became an amputee, 2003 when you became an amputee, it's it's really night and day. The the there's been a huge shift of responsibility onto onto patients that out it it outpaces inflation and frankly in the many instances it outpaces people's ability to be able to pay for it so it's a real real issue yeah it's definitely you know i i'm covered through workers comp and i've seen changes even in that system which is supposed to be you know in terms of rehabilitation the gold standard or at least it used to be um, but now, whereas I, I say, I'm sorry, you hear my little cherub in the background. He's petting the cat. Um, so I apologize. <laughs> um, but I've seen, you know, patients who used to just kind of get a blank check for whatever devices the doctor and prosthetist said that they need are now facing denials and are facing more the scrutiny of documentation. And even workers' comp is adopting more of a prove it that you need it mentality. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's definitely a trend that we've seen. And I think, you know, I, I I don't know how much more this will change moving forward, because it feels to me, just as someone who, who sits in this world and watches it unfold, it feels to me like there has to be a, an endpoint at which you, you can't extend beyond it. Um, you know, it, the, the burden placed on people financially for healthcare has it's close to a tipping point. And I think this is why you see in the, in the debate around ongoing healthcare reform, you see um, proposals like Medicare for all out there, um, which uh, presumably would, would help to, or the, the, the proponents of it believe it would help limit the crippling uh, aspects of the cost of, of medical insurance. I don't know whether or not that's ultimately going to prove to be true, but um, this is one that I think is here, it's here to stay, but I don't know how much worse it will get, frankly, because I don't know how much more the system can bear. Yeah, it's definitely something that, that we're on top of. And if you listen to Amped on a regular basis, this is not the first time that we've talked about insurance, and it certainly is not going to be the last time. Um, it's something that impacts everybody, regardless of your socioeconomic status, and it's something that we're going to stay on top of. Yep. The second item to discuss uh, is the value uh, of the care that's provided. And this is a really interesting trend that really has been spurred largely by the Affordable Care Act. And basically, what the Affordable Care Act has done is it is it has 
radically accelerated a shift towards trying to figure out how do we pay hospitals, physicians, and others in the healthcare system, not for the number of tests they perform or the number of times they see a patient, but rather for the outcomes that those interactions produce. And inherent in that is the concept that you need evidence to establish the uh, a basis for payment. And positive evidence should yield more payment and negative evidence should yield no payment at all or even, uh, in, in some proposals, penalties. And there are, there are affordable, accountable care organizations, ACOs that are on a, both a reward and penalty track. If you don't hit certain thresholds, you actually can have uh, money clawed back from you because you haven't provided effective health care. So this can act potentially as a break. To on access to prosthetics, because particularly when it comes to higher cost prosthetics, we see private insurance companies instituting medical policies that are restrictive, that designate the device as experimental and investigational. And the only way to ultimately try to refute that is through evidence. And so I think overall, Peggy, this is probably a good thing. I think we would all agree as consumers of healthcare, we want to get the things that are proven to be effective. But this presents certain challenges, especially in a field like prosthetics, where uh, there isn't a long history of uh, substantial clinical research. And by substantial, I mean the kind of research that payers are used to seeing studies that involve thousands, tens of thousands of patients over time that are double-blinded, that sort of meet the traditional gold standards for research. And it's very difficult to do that in prosthetics. You can't blind a user to what they're wearing. Um, It's very hard to get a study together that has 10,000 amputees. just doesn't happen. So, um, you know, I, I think that while the concept of an evidence base is, is good and we should all want that evidence to be out there and the stuff to get validated, on the other hand, as users, we know the effect of different types of technology and how profound the difference can be. And the evidence base hasn't quite caught up to that yet. And so in the meantime, you're caught in this kind of purgatory or, or lag time and payers are able to block access to technology on this basis. And I do just want to remind people that we do have a lot of information on our website, ampedlife.org, that, that can help guide you if you do receive an experimental or investigational denial for a prosthetic component or device. Um, hop on our website. We have a lot of information to help you through that, as well as our research index, which is the the largest holding of all of the different research studies in OMP. Um you know, and that can help with your case as well. Yeah, thanks for those reminders, Peggy. So let's turn then to the two more positive indirect changes we've seen since becoming amputees over the last 20 to 30 years. And those are first, the access to insurance generally, and that has increased as a result of the Affordable Care Act, at least for now. Um, you know, prosthetics are now considered an essential health benefit by every state, which is a really important thing, means they're not subject to annual or lifetime caps if you buy plans on the exchanges. Um, it also resulted in the elimination of pre-existing condition exclusions. And this was a real issue, Peggy. Um, when I first became an amputee and I was switching jobs, this was something I needed to think about because um, I, I needed to not only think about 
could I get the new job? But what was the timing of it in relation to the last time I sought care for a device? And what would I need going forward? And, you know, there, there are people or there were people in the pre-existing condition exclusion days who would not leave jobs because they were going to be excluded from coverage for their amputation for 12 to 18 months after they switched from job A to job B. And so these are good things. Now, the storm clouds on the horizon here as we record this podcast, um, John McCain passed away yesterday after uh, a long battle with cancer. And uh, there is now already speculation that uh, depending on who gets selected to fill his seat, that we could see the Republicans take another run at repealing and replacing Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act. And everyone who followed this closely and listened to our podcast back when this was happening in 2017, when all the repeal and replace efforts were going on, remembers that John McCain in the Senate cast the deciding vote against repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act. So um, this is going to definitely be something to watch as we continue to move forward. I don't know if Republicans are going to take a run at it before the election. I don't think they will. So I think that through the rest of this year, uh, we'll probably be status quo. But beginning in 2019, Peggy, I wouldn't surprise me at all if we see uh, a significant uptick in repeal and replace uh, talk once again. Yeah, I agree. I I definitely think it's going to be something that we're going to be talking a lot more about. I feel like we've gotten a little bit of a reprieve from a lot of the heavy advocacy calls to action and and fights and you know, I think it's everybody needs to you know stay educated, rest up because I definitely agree that a battle's brewing. Yeah. And then the last point I think that's an important change and I think this is a uh, an unreservedly positive thing is that amputees today, people with limb loss and limb difference, have more power than they've ever had before. And what I mean by that is we have more access to information through social media, through the internet, through things like the Amped Army community, where you can go and you can meet other amputees, you can gain access to information about products, about prosthetists, about uh, the world of limb loss, and you're able to take affirmative action based on that and be much more knowledgeable than I was when I became an amputee, Peggy, where I sat in the hospital. I'd never met an amputee in my life, at least to my knowledge. And when I got home, I didn't have a single piece of information about amputation, about limb loss. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know how to get it. And I just kind of ended up figuring it out um, on my own. And, and that's a, that's a one key way in which, um, the internet and social media have positively affected uh, the limb loss, limb difference community. And I think that that can't be understated. Um, I was in a very similar situation. I didn't have a lot of contacts with other amputees. I knew I was going to be having the amputation. Mine was, was a planned delayed amputation. So I was able to network and meet one woman who also did, you know, had a baloney amputation and she was really my lifeline. I felt like, okay, if Daphne could do it, I can do it. But now anybody really just has to, to go online and you can find the community ampedlife.com. Um, 
We invite you to join there. You can follow the podcast. You can join us on social media. You can join other social media groups. Um, and the the best thing about living with limb loss is is the community that we're part of. Um, and I've said it before. I don't think that you will find a more a more gracious group of individuals with their time, um, with their advice, with their their you know their compassion. Whenever somebody needs help, all you have to do is log on and help is there, support is there, information is there. Amped now hosts the the prosthetic encyclopedia. So if you want to window shop components, you can do that now um, where that information was not available before. So, you know, our strength within the community lies with our numbers and through social media and through other websites and internet, our, our community is stronger because we can band together. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And then there's another side to the amputee power concept, which is, um, you know, our ability to amplify our voices, to, to make our voices heard, our experiences known publicly is much greater than it used to be, whether it's by filing a Google review of a patient care experience, or it's uh, simply being able to push out information through other uh, forums and and information sources, the ability for people to understand, you know, what a, what a particular experience is like, or where to go, or why not to go someplace, what product to use, or maybe why a product isn't appropriate for you is is much greater today than it ever was before. I mean, when I became an amputee, there was no pathway to speaking to patients about the components they used beyond running into them at either a support group meeting or at the prosthetic facility itself which meant that you had to find somebody who was probably roughly your age and kind of lifestyle who would be wearing similar components to you and who would have a voice on that. Whereas today you can do all of this remotely through technology. And I, I think you, that's a really, really good point, Dave. Um, there are a lot of like super talented, wonderful individuals in the field. Um, but like any, you know, any profession, there are also some that, that, aren't as good. And I think that, that because amputees are connecting more than ever, you're able to know if the care that you're receiving is on par as quality, as quality care, or if perhaps you need to start looking somewhere else, because if you don't have that comparison, then you have no idea if, if the care that you're getting is normal or if you can do better. Right. Right. Yep. I think that's, I think that's spot on. Okay, those are the points I had. Do you want to summarize the uh, the key takeaways here? Uh, sure. So in the last, you know, since 2003 for me, 96 for Dave, but definitely over the past 25 years, there have been some some very significant changes to the community in the in the world of limb loss and limb difference in terms of prosthetics and in terms of insurance and access to care. Um, there are also some indirect changes that are perhaps more profound um, with how we how we get our insurance, how our insurance dictates our care, things like that. Um, and hold on, because things are going to keep changing. That's that's the nature of life. That's the nature of the profession. And we are definitely in a, a phase where I think we're going to see some pretty drastic changes, especially in the next decade or so. Um, you know, in 10 years, we'll probably listen to this podcast, Dave, and both chuckle on how we 
didn't see something spectacular on the horizon or how we were able to nail it. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, if people think that we missed anything, people who've been around for a while and who've observed changes themselves, whether whether it's just the last five years or the last 25 years, please feel free to, to weigh in, reach out to us on social media, reach out to us through our website. Uh, don't hesitate to drop us a line and let you know what you think. If you're part of the Amped Online community, the Amped Army community at ampedlife.com, you can do it there as well. So we'd really love your input. Would love to hear from everybody. It really makes my day. So. All, All right, right Dave. Good talking to you. You too. Thanks so much. Have a good week. Bye. You too. Bye.